You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. All right. We are in Acts, the book of Acts. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab that and open it up. Book of Acts, chapter 14. And uh, we'll also have it up on the screen for you to follow along if you don't or you like to roll that way. Uh, So here's what's been happening. Um, Last week, Josh shared in Acts chapter 13 that Paul, a guy named Paul and his companion Barnabas are being sent off by the church on the very first missionary journey with the gospel of Jesus to people who have never heard the gospel before. Um, Here's a map kind of help you grasp where we're at, and I'm supposed to have a laser that I forgot to grab, so uh, I was kind of looking forward to using the laser, too. Um, okay, so let's kind of orient you here. If you look all the way to the right over here, hey, there we go. <laughs> that is, thank you, Lord. Wow. Uh, <laughs> all the way to the right here, kind of at the bottom, okay, where the red, red line starts. Yes. This is where they were sent off. The church has been based in Antioch. They are sent, they go west to this island, follow the blue line actually, this island called Cyprus. Share the gospel there, people come to Christ. We heard that story last week. Then they continue to follow this blue line. They go up north and they hit this area up here. They travel through to the top. And so today they're coming back down to a place called Iconium. It's kind of hard to see on there. Um, they share the gospel in Iconium and then two other places, and they continue to go south. So you follow the end of that blue line. That's where we're at today. This is what's happening. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 14 at the very beginning, if you follow along with me. This is Paul and Barnabas coming to Iconium. Verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continue to preach the gospel. This um, particular passage, there's a parallel writing. It's in what's called the New Testament Apocrypha. It's called the Acts of Paul, written around the second century. We don't know. I shouldn't say we. Scholars don't know. I'm not one of them, so I just read what they say and take, take it um, to heart. Scholars say, are not sure if these are authentic writings, if some of the accounts in this could actually be true or not. But it is possible that some of these things could be accurate. This is very interesting. In this particular part that we just read, in the parallel in in the Acts of Paul, there's actually a description of what Paul looked like. Anybody curious to know what Paul looked like? I mean, I don't think we'll ever know what Jesus looks like until we get to heaven, but we might be able to see what Paul looks like, okay? Here we go. Did he have long hair? Did he have a beard? These are the questions we want to know. Okay, here's what it says. 
coming to Iconium, and he saw Paul coming, a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining, and nose somewhat hooked, full of grace. For sometimes he appeared like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. The Acts of Paul 3.3. You guys, it's true. Paul had a unibrow. Okay? (laughs) This is essential to the gospel message that we're looking at today. So, like I said, we, we can't look at that as scripture, but it is, it is very interesting. Um, not the way that I imagine Paul. I, I kind of imagine Paul as this big guy. Of, I mean, if when you walked in a room, you'd be like, whoa, like Paul is here. You know, uh, have you guys ever seen Braveheart, the movie? William Wallace, you know, and they, they're like, he's like nine feet tall, and then he shows up, and he's just this Bell Gibson, you know. Um, which, you know, I mean, he's a good-looking guy, muscular, but small, but, but not nine feet by any stretch of the imagination. And that's what kind of tends to happen. So it's just interesting to me. And, and the reason I show this is, number one, it's interesting. Um, but it also, I think, kind of helps me just remember that Paul was a real guy. Don't you sometimes just, just imagine, like, he didn't do anything wrong ever? You know? He's, just, he's almost just in almost like this this character in your mind that's not a real person, really. He was a real person. He may have had a unibrow. We don't know. Right? This, this was a real guy who, who was struggling to bring the gospel, and Barnabas was as well. They were going to real places, sharing the gospel with real people, as we're going to see today. Real people with real problems. So, so it opens up, and here's kind of the pattern you see in this one. We're going to focus on the next section today primarily, but I want to touch on just a few things here as we, in the context. Um, here's kind of the pattern that happened with Paul and Barnabas, and it continues in, this, in the beginning of chapter 14. They go into a city. The first thing that they do is find a Jewish synagogue. So they find a synagogue. Synagogues were where the Jewish people would come to gather and to do a lot very similar to what we're doing today. In fact, the way that we do church in America here today is historically was patterned after the synagogue. Um, there was singing, there was someone who would stand up, open a passage of the word, and exegete the passage, talk about the passage, apply it um, to life. And so they would go to a Jewish synagogue where these people, number one, God loved the Jewish people, they were his people. They wanted to tell the Jewish people, the Messiah that you've been looking for, that we've been looking for, has come, and his name is Jesus. And so they would share first with the Jewish people. Then they would go and share with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are obviously the non-Jewish people, anyone who's not a Jew. They would share with the Gentiles. The reaction would usually be some people would be very um, opposed to the message, particularly many times the Jewish people. It would be, it was, they felt it was a threat to them. And then other people would be receptive to the message. So usually when the gospel was shared, it divided people right down the middle. You're either, it's a radical message. You're either for it or you're against it. And then what would follow is persecution, trying to kill Paul, and they would leave the city and go to the next. That's kind of the pattern. This is exactly what happened here. What we're going to look at today is extremely fascinating because the pattern gets broken. Let me see that map again up here. So here's what they're doing. The very top there they, of the blue line, they come back down south. The first place they hit there is Iconium, what we just looked at. 
in the tradition, they find persecution and they have to leave. And so they go down southwest to a place called Lystra, about 18 miles, and then they go southeast about 60 miles to a place called Derby. Here's what's different about Lystra than any of the other places that they've gone. The first, first thing is there's no Jewish synagogue there. And the people speak a native language that Paul and Barnabas don't understand. So this is what, this is what it changes about their ministry. And we're going to see in here in this amazing story how they have to adapt to this. This is kind of like, it's, it's, it's a Roman uh, province, but it's also kind of the outskirts. So they might have like maybe a, a Roman garrison there, a small Roman garrison. There's no Jewish synagogue. Most of the people in these areas, if they weren't from the Romans that were stationed to live there, are native people. So these are like the native Lyconians who have lived there for who knows how many years. They speak the Lyconian language. Greek is spoken there by the Romans, and I'm sure that some of the Lyconians spoke Greek because it was probably taught to them. But they also speak their native language. So this is Paul and Barnabas are going to what we're going we're gonna to call unreached people groups. Can you guys say that, say that with me together? Unreached people groups. Ready? Unreached people groups. Okay. It's a very important word that we're going to unpack as we go through this message. So let's see what happens when Paul and Barnabas come to this place. Here we go. Verse 8. So backing up, just, just one, two verses here in verse 6. Here's what happens. They learned of it. They fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, to the surrounding country. So verse 8, we pick that up. Now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Okay. So, would you guys agree with me? Things are going well so far. Would you guys say? If, 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 you know, Tara and I are, are planning to hopefully go to, to Basque Country as missionaries. When we get there, if we got there, the first thing that happens is I see someone who's crippled, and I say, stand to your feet in the name of Jesus, and they stand up and are healed. It'd be like, things, I'd be able to, I'd be loving my first newsletter back to you guys. Healed someone today. <laughs> things are going great, you guys. I think we're supposed to be doing this, okay? Right? This is going well. Okay. Let's continue on the story. What happens? He sprang up to his feet, verse 10, and began walking. And the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices and began praising God that he had brought salvation to them. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. They lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Okay, so notice just a couple things in here first. Notice that they're saying this in the Lyconian language, and we're going to see in a moment. Paul and Barnabas have no idea what they're doing because they don't hear what they're saying. What they're doing is they might think, oh, they're praising Jesus. Barnabas, this is going really well. They're saying, the God, you, you guys are gods. You've come down in human form. Okay, that's like evangelism gone wrong. When's the last time that happened to you? Okay. So, 
Usually miracles are a good thing because they help us proclaim the gospel and they confirm what we're saying. In this case, it actually goes counter. Um, there's a kind of a famous missionary back in the late 60s, 70s, Don, uh, Don Richardson. Anybody heard of him? He wrote a book called The Peace Child. Anybody read that? Here's just an example of that. Don Richardson and his family, his wife, and their new little, their newborn baby. <laughs> there's a picture of them in the book in a little canoe going down the river to the jungles where, that have never been civilized, and they're cannibals, which means they eat each other. So here they go with their little baby <laughs> to tell them about Jesus. So this guy's crazy or extremely filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and they go in, and, and there's a tradition that these people, particular people had, that they would, you were a hero, you were considered you have done the greatest thing that a human could possibly do. If you were able to fatten someone up with friendship, make them completely trust you, and then when they're not expecting it, kill them and eat them. If you were able to pull that off, you were, you were celebrated as you were like, you were the man, okay? So Don Richardson and his family get there. They start sharing the gospel with these people. They learn the language. And they, they're finally able to articulate the gospel. So they gather the people around. They articulate the gospel to these people. And, and when he gets to Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, everyone says, yes, Judas, Judas. And they start celebrating Judas. Why is that? Because in their eyes, it's like Jesus, Judas is the hero of the story. He fattened up Jesus for friendship and then betrayed him. So it's the same type of thing. You go into a place where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, you share the gospel message, and people interpret it in a different way. And that's exactly what's happening here. Here's what continues to happen. Verse 15, uh, verse 14. So, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. So they're healing them as gods, and then in 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to sacrifice with the crowds. Okay, so now they're not only saying, you guys are gods, we're, they're actually offering sacrifices to them. Now, this, is, this will help us kind of uh, understand why they're doing this. This is kind of cool. There is a story that was told by Ovid, who is a Roman poet, about 100 years earlier, that in the area of Phrygia, which is very close um, to where they are, there was a story told that the gods, Zeus and Hermes, Hermes came down in human form to Phrygia. They went throughout the town and appeared to a thousand people, people's houses, asking them if they could stay there. And all 1,000 of the people turned them down, turned them away. Except for one couple, this nice, sweet little couple that lived in a little humble cottage, allowed them to come in and stay. So how did Zeus and Hermes respond? They destroyed the entire town with a flood killed everyone, turned the, this couple's house into a temple, beautiful, ornate temple of gold, and they became the priest and priestess of the temple. So you can imagine that this story, I'm sure they were very, very familiar with. And so they're going, okay, you guys, we get a second chance at this. Zeus and Hermes came down in human form. Let's not do, let's not make the same mistake again. So they're making sure that they don't. They're offering sacrifices. Let's, let's be hospitable. Let's bring them in. So this is what's happening here. How do Paul and Barnabas react? 
Men, why are you doing these things? I'm sorry, verse 14, I'm sorry. But when, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd. Okay, first of all, here's another kind of funny thing. Tearing your garments, you guys know what that means in Jewish culture? It means that someone has blasphemed God, and you're showing, like, you're absolutely outraged by it, by, by what's happening, this blasphemy of God. And so priests would tear their garments, just like, I don't know if they were, like, pre, like, you know, what's the stuff called we have on the, on the perforation, yeah. Perforated garments, you're like, no! Because, I mean, I don't know if you've tried tearing your clothes, but it's not extremely easy unless you have a really light fabric or something. But, but they would tear their clothes, okay? Do you think the Lyconian people knew what that meant? I don't know. They may not have. So now they're thinking, okay, the gods are taking their clothes off. <laughs> All right, well, let's just go with this. <laughs> we'll see what happens. They don't know what's going on. Paul and Barnabas, it said that when they finally learned what was happening, they're saying in Lyconian, they have no idea what they're saying. They're doing all these things. Some, finally, they realize they're sacrificing to us as gods. Maybe someone came to them and told them what's happening in Greek or whatever. They understand that. Then they're realizing, which is noble, they're going, they're sacrificing to us as gods. They tear their clothes because that is the last thing that they want. They're here to glorify the living God for people to know him. And now they're being seen as gods. This is like horrible for them. So they tear their clothes, they cry out, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should run, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Okay. So the first thing that they do is they, they get the attention off of themselves. They're trying to tell these people Maybe they have an interpreter. I don't know how they're talking to them. Maybe they understand Greek as well. Saying we are not, we are just human beings just like you. That's a good move because a few chapters back, Herod was worshipped as a god and he accepted it and we know what happened to him. Uh, the Conant um, missional community group. Anybody in that group? Yeah, you guys had some fun with that story, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. They acted it out and the kids got to eat Herod. There were worms eating him. Um, so just passing that on, that's good ideas for your home community meetings. Things are getting dry. Um, didn't go well for him. So they take the attention off of themselves. This is the living God. We're just humans like you. So what is the message that they give? Here's what I love about this particular passage. Is that Paul and Barnabas, they're completely, you know the Paul that's like confident? He's rushing in, he's articulating the gospel and and, and arguing, he's just, Paul's just smooth. People are coming to Christ. Well, in this, they're completely thrown off. They don't, tearing their clothes, they don't, they don't know what's going on. You see Paul and Barnabas for the first time in this mission discovering, okay, we're taking the gospel to Gentiles now. We're taking the gospel to people groups who are unreached. That means they don't know the gospel. They don't even understand Jewish culture. They don't even really, probably have never even heard anything about the Jewish Bible, the Torah. They don't know what's going on. So they're walking in and, and the normal approach isn't working. The normal evangelism where boom, 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 here's how we do it. This has worked before. All of a sudden it's not working. So they have to adapt. So what do they do? How do they turn out of this? What is their message? Here's what it is. 
that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So first they establish who God is. That's key. When you're talking in a Jewish synagogue, they already know, they already know who God is, and they even have the right one. So it's not a question of which God is it. Now we have to understand what did he do. They have to start from the very beginning. This is good for us because even in the city of Portland, and this generation is becoming extremely secular, and Portland itself is an extremely secular place. You can't just assume people know what you're talking about when you say, Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. You, you can't just, like, assume they know what you're talking about. Number one, okay, where did Jesus come from? Why did he die? Why did he die? And what is sin? <laughs> what does that mean? You have to understand who you're talking to. This is what Paul and Barnabas are learning here. They're establishing him. This is the creator God. All of your other gods, Zeus, Hermes, they said, turn to a living God. What are they saying in that? Your gods are dead. You're not alive. So they're establishing the creator who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He made the world. It's his. You're part of it. That means he made you. You have to decide what you're going to do. They're confronting them with the living God. Then he says this in 16. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. That means that he allowed people to rebel against him and, and to do what they want and to live life their own way. That's what sin is. This is how Paul is, he's, a, he's not saying you're a sinner. You notice that? Past generations, he allowed nations to walk their own way. That's something they're going to get right away. I understand that. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is amazing, too. What he does is he's telling them, notice in this, he doesn't open the Bible like he does all of the times before. He doesn't quote Scripture to them. Why doesn't he do that? Because it doesn't mean anything to them. What's the, bi what's the Bible, the Torah? I don't care. Tell, to talk to me. I don't believe that that's even real. Um, when we, our interactions we've had with the Basque people, when you quote Scripture with them, it's not extremely effective. Because their first things out of their mouth is, how, why would I listen to that? <laughs> how do I know that's true? So they're bringing it home to them. And they're saying, look, you've had rains from heaven that water your crops, giving you food that you've eaten, and he even says it's given you joy. Anybody feel good after a nice meal? Just yesterday, I was kind of having a, a rough uh, afternoon, and we got to someone's house, and I smelled the food, and I was like, okay, I'm going to be all right. <laughs> We're going to get through this, you know. Um, so that's God that does that. They're telling them, where do you think this comes from? It comes from God, this creator God that we're telling you about, this living God. So he's establishing this to them. He's bringing it home where they live. This is just amazing what he's doing. Notice, too, that he never gets to Jesus, which is interesting. Does he get to Jesus later, to the cross or resurrection? I would assume that he probably does because there are some disciples here. Guess who one of those disciples are from Lystra? A guy named Timothy. Anybody heard of him? Okay. Verse 18. Even, even, so I, I listen to those words and I'm like, dude, that's beautiful. Good job, you guys. They're adapting their message. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Okay, so, even with all of this, they still can barely get them to stop. Not only, they, 
they're gods. They're Hermes and Zeus. I mean, that's just the way it is. But they can't even get him to stop sacrificing to them. They see them as Hermes and Zeus. Um, Zeus was, was the, the greater god, the god of the weather is really what he was. Hermes was his messenger. So they probably saw Barnabas as Zeus because he perhaps was older, maybe taller, didn't have a unibrow. I don't know. They saw him as Zeus. Paul was the one speaking, so he was like the messenger. So they identified him as Hermes. So this is the state that they're in. Even after Paul shares this message, they tear their clothes, they're mortified. The people are still like, no, we want to offer sacrifices. We don't want to die in a flood again, like what happened to our ancestors. So what happens? Verse 19. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, so where they had just gone, we learned last week, Antioch, and then Iconium, the place they had just left, have been following them and pursuing them. They, come, they came down, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Okay. This is a bad day. <laughs> I was thinking that this morning as I was looking this over. I'm like, dang, that was a bad day. Okay. You go to a place, you heal someone, and because you heal someone, they start worshiping you as gods and trying to sacrifice you to you. They can't, you can't convince them to stop sacrificing to you. And then they stone you <laughs> with rocks to death and leave you laying there dead. Okay, that's, that's a bad day. Also, another thing I notice is this is a tough crowd. <laughs> if, you guys, if you guys agree, have you ever tried to share Christ with someone? It did and it didn't go well? Wow. <laughs> Holy shnikes. This was a tough crowd. Okay. Not only did they not get... I mean, they, they did a stinking healing. <laughs> what else can you possibly do? Like the heavens open and Jesus looked down and be like, what's up? I mean, this is like... They've done everything they could. They've given a beautiful gospel message. They he did a miracle in front of them. Not only do they worship them as gods and not believe and not want to be their friends anymore, they try to kill them. This is just, this is unbelievable what's happening here. Verse 20. So Paul is laying there, basically left for dead. He just got stoned. Paul just got stoned. He's laying on the ground. They think he's dead. Everyone leaves. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, and we don't know if this might have been, you, you got to be careful in Acts because sometimes it looks like something's happening the same day, but not necessarily. This could have been disciples or people that, people that had responded to the message and believed, or maybe they'd shown interest, and so they stuck around. So they gather around him. I would imagine Timothy was probably there. They gather about him. He rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on to, to, uh, to with Barnabas, to Derby. Okay. Dude, this is like, are you guys with me on this? I don't know. I can't, I don't know how much more I can sell this to you guys. This is unbelievable, dude. Paul was like an animal. And I'm sure he had the, I'm sure it was somewhat miraculous, you know, and, and with the help of God. I don't, it doesn't appear that he actually died and God raised him from the dead, but, but I'm sure that God was preserving him and allowing him to live. And Paul will even speak of this later as we'll see in a moment. But dude, but you got to give the guy credit, like even in his flesh. <laughs> like, after all he went through that day, then he gets stoned. You get stoned and you're laying there and they think you're dead. So that means you're not moving, you know. 
I don't know if they checked his pulse or what. Okay, if that happened to me, and then somehow I came to, and I'm like, I'm still alive, okay? And in very much pain. I get up, I would be like, I'm going to take a couple weeks off, you guys. Um, Call my wife and kids, we're going to go chillax somewhere in the mountains. And um, I'll let you know if I'm still going to be in this thing. (laughs) What's going on here? What does Paul do? Gets back up, he walks back into the into the city, into Lystra. The play, the people that just stoned him, he walks back into that city. Like, number one, I would love to see people's faces. They're like, dum da dum da dum, got rid of that guy. Paul's like, hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> nice try. Is that all you got? Stoning? Like, bring it on, you know. Guy's a stinking animal, dude. Unbelievable. So, Paul goes back into the city, and I'm sure that he probably discipled some people, namely Timothy, would have been one of those. And I imagine as well that people probably, because when I, when I first, you know, have looked at this before, I thought, well, if he went back to the city, wouldn't they just stone him again? Oh, I guess we didn't finish the job. Well, think about it. Number one, they already thought they might be gods. <laughs> and then you stone them, and he, you kill him, and he gets back up and walks in the city. They were probably like in fear of him, to be honest with you. The Jews might have left by then. They're just like, you know what? Let's just leave these guys alone. <laughs> they want to tear their clothes and do all this weird stuff, whatever. So Paul probably just stayed there for a little bit, disciple these people. But then he also goes to the next town, 60 miles away, into Derby, and shares the gospel and makes disciples there. After he just got stoned. He doesn't take a day off. He's like, I'm on a mission. Verse 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples there, as Jesus commanded them to do, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Okay, that just kind of goes whoosh, over your head. I want you to capture what they did here. Check this out on the map. Okay, so you followed that blue line, right? That's their first journey. They get to the end of the blue line. They got stoned on the way. Goes to Derby, shares the gospel, makes disciples. Then it says they went back. They basically followed uh, the red line, which is basically going back the way they came. So, so look at the red line. They go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, and then back down to the coast and sailed all the way back to Antioch where they came from to finish the journey. One thing you might notice about this is which way would you go home after a journey like that and getting stoned on the way? I'd hop to the right and just be like, let's just... You notice the red line is like at least three times longer than the other. So here's the question I have for you. Why did they go that route? It tells us in here. They went back and visited the places where people came to Christ, strengthening the souls of the disciples. I love this because to Paul... It shows us that Paul is an evangelist. He's the guy out sharing the gospel. But well, we can't imagine him just like running in the cities and being like, okay, guys, believe, sweet. Good luck with that. I'm out. He like had concern for the churches and for the disciples. He wanted to nurture them and make sure that they understood and these churches were solid and that they were going to last. Obviously, he wasn't going to be there as a long-term pastor. But I love his heart for that as he took the, they took the time to go back like over three times longer than it would have taken the other way stopped in these places. And remember, these places they're going back to, they, they experienced persecution there. People wanted to kill them. They have people there that want to kill them. They're going in there anyway to disciple these believers. It's amazing. So what did they, how did they strengthen the souls of the disciples? Here's what it says. 
in verse 22. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And what was their encouragement to them? And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You think? That's their message. So they're going in. They want to strengthen their souls. And they want to encourage them, this church, to continue forward. So how do they ensure that that happens? They tell them the truth. They say, you know what, you guys? You just gave your lives to Christ. I just got stoned in Lystra, FYI. You might not get stoned, but you might. You might get killed. You might get killed for Jesus. So make sure this is what you want. You're going to go through tribulations and hardships. When you look at the, all the New Testament letters that he wrote, and that Paul wrote, and John wrote, all these guys, that's kind of one of the overriding themes. That's their message. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, a disciple that he found in Lystra, who would end up joining him on his, on his later journeys. You know what the letter is? It's basically telling Timothy, you're going to continue my work when I die. And so let me give you a job description. And the book of Timothy is, you're going to suffer, then you're going to suffer, then you're going to suffer some more. And as the message translation phrases it, take it on the chin like the rest of us for Jesus. Be faithful. Proclaim the word in season and out of season when it's popular, when it's not popular. Proclaim the word. Endure like a good soldier of Jesus. And finish the task. That's his message to Timothy. Finish it. It's not glamorous at all, you guys. That is what the Christian faith is. This is the heart of the Christian faith. It shouldn't depress us, but we need to be real. There's going to be extreme joy that we have in Christ because we know the living God. And he fills us with the Spirit and he gives us joy. But it's not supposed to be easy. Like, if your life's easy, it's just easy being a Christian, there really is something wrong. It should not be easy. We, we need each other. We need to come to a place of family, as Josh shared, the identity of family. We need each other. There's a reason we're together and God made us a family. Because when you're living, when you're really living for Christ, it should be getting extremely hard and extremely confusing. And we need each other to cur- encourage each other and to strengthen each other's souls and, and remind each other why we're in this and what we're doing. And ultimately, I love that it's an identity. I like the illustration Josh used of the being in the game. But it's an identity. It's not just go do all this stuff and it's going to be hard. It's who you are. If I'm playing in a football game, I understand I'm going to get hit. And it's going to hurt a lot of times. And I could even get injured really badly. That's just, that's the way it goes. That's the game that we're in. But I am a professional football player. This is what I do. This is my team. And we're here to win. You guys get what I'm saying? It, it's an identity. I'm a, the, all the New Testament Christians, the number one way that they refer to themselves, John MacArthur tells us this. Um, I haven't double-checked, but that would take some time. But I trust what he's saying. The number one way that Christians refer to themselves, that the New Testament writers refer to themselves, to their identity of who they are, is a slave of Jesus Christ. We see it as servant in most of our Bibles, and and really that translation is because when we see the word slave, it has connotations that are different than what it really means in the Greek. We have our history of slavery, and so we associate it with that. So usually the word servant is chosen. But a slave was in bonds to someone. They were, they were an indentured slave to that person. 
That's how they saw themselves. That's what that's your identity. I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm f- I'm in the family of God. I'm an ambassador for Christ. It's who I am. And I'm a servant. We use the word servant. That's what it is. I'm a slave of God. I'm his. He owns me. Not, I'm living my life, and God, I want to fit you into it. Hey, God, what, what can you do about this right here? Let me talk to you about this. I'm, I'm in the bonds of Christ. That's what it is. That means whatever comes along the way, the joys, I rejoice in them. The sorrows, I feel sorrow. And my brothers and sisters comfort me, and I share those with God. And when I suffer, I suffer. It doesn't mean you look for it. Notice how they left the one place, Iconium? They heard that they were trying to kill them, they left. Sometimes it's, you leave. It's not like, well, we're supposed to suffer, so let's just go in there. And You know, we live a life that's led by the Spirit. Paul felt he needed to go back into Lystra, and so he did. We're led by God. We're led by Christ. We're led by His Spirit. And if suffering happens to be on the way, we endure that, and we try to do it with joy. And that's what it says, Christ, Jesus, went to the cross for the joy set before him, enduring its suffering. That's in Hebrews. That's what the Christian life is. Um, there's one, one person, a writer once said that the Christian life cannot be made suburban. I love that. It's always frontier. Suburbia is like this quote-unquote American dream that I can have this nice house with a white picket fence, raise my family, and no one will ever hurt me. And I'll always be okay in nice, safe suburbia. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life cannot be like that. It's always frontier. It's always in the bonds of Christ. Where are you leading me? What do you want me to do next? Oh, we're going to, to Spain? Moving my entire family to, to Spain, to the Basque country? To people that don't want to hear the gospel? <laughs> All right. You know? Sometimes stuff, crazy stuff like that happens. We've got to be following him in, in what he desires for us to do, each one of us, and as a, as a body, as a family. We're on that journey together as a family. That's how it's supposed to be for all of us. And if they're suffering with it, then we suffer, and we suffer with Christ, and it draws us nearer to him, and he encourages our hearts. It's frontier. It's moving forward. God has a heart for the nations. Here's how the uh, passage ends. Verse 23, And when they had, had appointed elders for them in every church— with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Again, here's Paul and Barnabas' heart for the church. They establish elders. They establish leaders. And they establish them with prayer and fasting. It's, very, it's very done in the fear of God and, and spiritually in the Spirit. And they make sure. And they know that when they leave, they're trusting these churches to the Holy Spirit because they can't be there to hold their hand and walk them through everything. So they do this very carefully. That's how we want to be at Red Sea as well. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, following the red line, if you have the map behind me. Actually, I'm sorry, we can't have both at the same time. (laughs) Uh, Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And remained no little time with the disciples. They shared how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's what Paul is all about. Why did Paul get back up and go into the city? What gave him the strength to do that? It was God called him to be an ambassador, and particularly for him, to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, the word in the Greek is always ethnos. 
And the, the word ethnos is where we get our word ethnic, ethnic people groups, like the Lyconians. And they don't have the gospel. And God called Paul to go and Barnabas to go to those unreached people and to bring the gospel. And they were supported and encouraged by the Christian church. There's two aspects to this movement of the gospel across the globe. It's moving it across the globe to unreached people. And there's also right where you are. The church that established in Lyconia was responsible to share with their friends, with their neighbors, with, with the people. That's how it works. Here's the Christian life. Here's what got Paul back up. A few string of verses here I want to show you as just walk through and as we close, as we're building into communion. Um, the first one is, comes after that last map that I have on there. It's in Timothy. And it's on the screen right now. Thank you, Junior. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy about what happened to him in Lystra. Here's what he says. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you notice all who want to live, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you actually desire to do that and you do it, you will be persecuted. Notice the the things Paul's encouraging Timothy with. Continue in faith, be steadfast, endure. Check out this next one. Paul says again, Philippians 1.29-30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And he says in Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And the last. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's the the task that awaits us, you guys, as we close today. And this is what I want to bring home today. This is a unique opportunity. This is the first time that Paul and Barnabas go to unreached people groups. They cross cultural boundaries that are unfamiliar, language boundaries to bring the gospel. They're going to people groups. There are people groups in the world today. When we think of nations, we think of lines on a map with a nicely labeled country in those, like India, China, USA. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all ethnos, nations, all the Gentiles. Here's what he's talking about. People groups. In the world today, there are 16,750 people groups on the planet. How many of those are unreached? 6,921. So 6,921 people groups do not have the gospel, do not have a church in their own language, a functioning church, able to disciple their own people. They don't have it. To bring it home a little bit, in the nation of India, There are approximately 2,458 people groups. 2,216 of these are unreached. Did you know that one out of every four 
missionaries, statistically, go to an unreached people group. So even people that, that are called to, to cross-cultural missions go to places that are reached where there is a church. And that's noble, and there is need for that. But only one in every four go to an unreached people, and there's 2,216. You just need someone to go in, like Paul and Barnabas did, and bring them the gospel and help them establish a church. Here's a quote I want to just give to bring this practically to us. Ralph Winter. This is jumping ahead a little bit. Sorry about that. Should be right after this. No? Nothing? Go back. Uh, go back, sorry. No video yet. No video, sorry. Can we get that off? There it is. Welcome to Disorganized Religion. Okay, here's what he said. Ralph Winter is the director of the Center for World Missions. He passed away, but here's a quote that he gave. If all the members, and just track with us for a second because it's amazing. If all the members of every church in the whole world were to bring every one of their friends and relatives within the same cultural group to obedient faith in Christ, and they in turn were able to bring all their friends and relatives to Christ, and so on, no matter how much time you allow, there would still be billions who would never come to faith. Think about that for a second. If every single Christian on the face of the planet right now, every single one of them led every single person that they know in their sphere of influence to saving faith in Christ, and those people in turn led every single person that they know, and so on and so on and so on, no matter how much time you allow, a thousand years, two thousand years, there would still be billions of people who would never come to faith. How is that possible? The reason it's possible is because a people group exists and there's a boundary around that people group. It's a cultural and linguistic boundary. And no matter how many people you lead outside of that, they're not going to hear the gospel. They're not going to come to faith. They're not going to have a church until someone crosses over that boundary that has the gospel, brings it to them. And there's thousands of those in need of the gospel. You guys, we have an amazing opportunity to be a part of that. Um, just one of those. <laughs> There's so many. Where do you start? The Basque people, they live in northern Spain, southern France. They're considered an unreached people group. We're, my family, we actually happen to be going there. We have an awesome opportunity to be a part of that. And I hope that, that God does many amazing things that some of you get to come over and visit. Some of you have hosted Basque students and have got to experience some of that. And I hope that we end up as Red Sea grows, that we go to more and more, maybe some of these places in India, who knows? God can use us to do that, and he asks us to go, to give, to pray, and we're all a part of that together. But also here in St. John's and in Portland, there are people that are desperately need the gospel, and that's where we come in in our sphere of influence. We're supposed to be a part of both of these aspects of the gospel, this is why Christ died and suffered on the cross for our sins, to save us and redeem us, to be ambassadors to those who don't know him. Here's an amazing verse, the last verse I have up there. From Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's watch a, a video together. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.